Road to Cinema's final draft screenwriting software giveaway is now beginning. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter at Jog Road or like us on Facebook, Jog Road Productions, to be automatically entered into the contest. We'll be announcing our first winner at the end of March, so stay tuned and see if you can win a free voucher to purchase Final Draft screenwriting software brought to you by our friends at Final Draft. Welcome to episode number 25 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring Oscar-winning editor Lisa Fruchtman. We'll be discussing her work with director Francis Ford Coppola, which included Apocalypse Now, The Godfather Part 3, and Captain EO, which was a 3D Michael Jackson attraction at Disneyland and Disney World. Lisa's work with Michael Cimino, which included Heaven's Gate, and the American space epic The Right Stuff, which was directed by Philip Kaufman, and the film which won Lisa her Academy Award for Best Editing. We'll also be discussing her new documentary, Sweet Dreams, as well as the films My Best Friend's Wedding and Children of a Lesser God. Our conversation also features a very in-depth discussion about Lisa's editing process. So if you're fascinated by film editing, this is the episode for you. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, at jogroad, for the latest updates, as well as jogroadproductions on Facebook. And now we join Oscar-winning editor Lisa Fruchtman as she discusses her work with Francis Ford Coppola on Apocalypse Now. You know, I'll, I'll give you a little background first. I started as, I worked as an assistant editor on Godfather Part Two with Richie Marks. And then when I first came on to Apocalypse Now, I was the first assistant editor also under Richie Marks. But uh, the movie took a long, Apocalypse took a very long time to edit. We were in the editing room for two and a half years. So, uh, and it was a, you know, remarkably difficult process. So... I was actually the first edit, the first assistant for about eight months before I became a full editor on the film. And so I had been working with Richie and I had been working with uh, Jerry all that time. And, um, and then eventually Walter came up to the film as well. And so it was a very, very, very intense um, process on so many levels. Uh, I had been editing scenes, different small scenes, uh, at night after my full day as an assistant. Uh, all along, I had been editing small scenes, uh, some of which Francis had seen, some of which he had not seen. I had just been doing that. Uh, and eventually, um, I uh, was given a very, very hard scene to edit, which was the Playboy Bunny scene. And that was really my first big scene. Um, and that was very difficult because it was shot. It had like uh, eight cameras covering it. No, I guess maybe five cameras covering it. Uh, but it was the initial cut of the movie, which had been done by someone, possibly Richie, I'm not sure, um, was about eight minutes long. And it was too long and it wasn't working. And so I was given that scene to work on, which was incredibly challenging. And... Um, I worked on it for a long time, which was also luxurious. Uh, I was given a long time to work on it. And eventually, when Francis saw it, he was really impressed with it. It was sexy, it was shorter, and it worked. And so that was really um, how I became um, a full editor on Apocalypse Now. 
Was uh, was the editing going on uh, overseas, or was it mostly in the United States? Would they like sort of ship the footage uh, back over, or? Well, the first assembly was going on um, overseas, and actually, at that time, the editor was Barry Malkin, who was also a longtime collaborator of Francis. And um, in the course of the shooting, um, for personal reasons, uh, Barry dropped out of the, the film. And so then when it came back to San Francisco, there was also another, um, another editor on at the beginning, but that, that also didn't work for Francis, so he left the film. <laughs> and then um, it, it, there were a lot of editors on Apocalypse Now. You know, then uh, Richie, was on, uh, Richie was on the whole time, and so ultimately uh, he was credited as supervising editor because he was on really from the beginning of the time in San um, Jerry Greenberg was on for quite a long time uh, and worked a lot with the um, the footage of the bombing from the air. You know, it was it was a very very complicated film to edit. It took a long time. Different editors kind of took took on whole sections of the film at different times. But it was a little bit like the war itself. People fell by the roadside. You know, it was it was very grueling. Yeah, I know um, at the very beginning of the production, Harvey Keitel was playing uh, the Martin Sheen role, the lead role in the film. Right. Yes, and in fact, um, I I I had the ability to look at, I had the chance to look at that early footage um, with Harvey Keitel, and actually it was just an entirely different film. I mean, Harvey was very different, the whole setup of the film was different, and... um, for whatever reasons, Harvey didn't work out with Francis. There was also a big storm at that time, which which hurt the set. And so when the film was recapped, it was also just rebooted in an entirely different way. I mean, the, the first footage was just completely different. Uh, so it allowed Francis to kind of start over. Yeah. I always wondered, uh, the voiceover component of the film, was that in the screenplay or was that added during uh, a lot of the editing process? It was added quite late in the editing process, and it came about in a really interesting way. Um, you know, the movie the movie was really having trouble kind of finding its form, and um, at one point, um, uh, actually, Richie gave me as a as a as a holiday gift um, Michael Hare's book Dispatches, and when I read Dispatches, um, which is such a remarkable book. Um, there was an element in it that reminded me a lot of Apocalypse, and I gave the book to Francis. And it turned out that in that Francis, that one of Michael Hare's essays had been um, written in a in magazine, had been published in a magazine. I don't remember which one. And Francis had actually read it, and it had in fact influenced um, his script, um, a scene, the scene of the destruction of the Delong Bridge. And when Francis reread Dispatches. He immediately hired Michael Hare to come and work on the narration, and that's how the narration came to be. Michael Hare came back, came up to the project. Well, uh, I was wondering too about uh, the the sound on the film because the you know the 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 sound is so vivid, the the music as well, but the sound is you know um, is so is so much a vital aspect of it. Not just because it's a war movie, but it just creates this sort of surreal atmosphere. Uh, I was wondering how important uh, creating a a great soundtrack was to sort of emphasizing what was going on in the narrative. 
Well, of course, it was incredibly important, and that is all um, Walter Murch uh, as the sound designer. There was a great sound sound crew as well, but um, Walter really, um, you know, really designed um, the emotional landscape of the film through sound, and he actually, he had come on to mix the film, but we were not even close to ready to mixing the film. Uh, when he came on, and so that's when he started cutting picture as well. Uh, so he cut picture for quite a while until the till it was time to do sound. And even though there was, as I said, a sound a really great sound supervisor on the film, um, you know, Walter Walter's input was really uh, crucial to the sound design of the film. And I don't know if you remember, but the beginning of the film is this sound montage. As it opened in the theaters, it opened initially with a sound overture in the black. And this was the sound of the jungle, sound of the insects, which ultimately became the sound of the fan um, in the hotel room. And that sound of the fan also merged with the sound of the helicopter in the, in the opening sequence of the bombing. It's part of the opening sequence. So... You know, that sort of set the stage. That was the opening of the film, was a soundscape. Wow, and that's a, a brilliant aspect. That Was that ever in the screenplay, or that was uh, completely sort of come up with by Walter and everybody? Um, I don't, you know, it's a long time ago, and I don't think it was in the screenplay. You know, what was in the screenplay was the Jim Morrison song. That was in the screenplay. But um, I, don't, I don't really think the soundscape was. I can't swear to that, but I'm pretty sure not. Actually, actually, um, while we're talking, I'm going to be looking for something, which is some of the opening pages of the script that I have, but uh, I don't think I have it handy. I'm pretty sure not. Uh, I was wondering too about the about the Redux version, which came out, I think, in 2000 or 2001. Uh, what was your opinion as far as sort of you know, the, the way that was put together. I, were you involved in the Redux at all? or No, I wasn't involved in the Redux. Um, Walter did the Redux. Um, you know, my personal opinion is just that, you know, you know it, was a, it was an incorporation of certain things that were, you know, taken out of the film um, and put back into the film. And um, some of the things that were put back into the film, it was great that they were put back into the film I mean, overall, I felt that everything we took out of the film needed to be taken out for the film to work. And so it was very interesting to see the redux because it confirmed that feeling. Um, you know, there, there were some scenes that went into the redux that really were out of the film very early on because they just weren't, <laughs> they weren't good enough. But there were other scenes um, that made it back into the redux that really were fantastic scenes. Um, but... You know, when you're cutting a movie, there's the adage that you have to kill your darlings. You have to kill things. You have to take away things that really are wonderful or that you love, but they don't, um, they're not good for the whole. And so um, the Redux did give people a chance to see some of those wonderful scenes that didn't make it into the film, which are wonderful scenes. But in the end, I felt the movie was best served by them being out. Yeah, it's it's sort of one of those things where you have to look at the entire film and the pace of it, and even if you really love a scene, if it's not serving the whole, then it really doesn't doesn't help the audience in terms of you know watching the film over time and everything. 
That's right. So, you know, you have to be very brutal um, at the end of the day. But, you know, the movie was edited under a tremendous amount of pressure and over a long period of time. And so it was it was difficult to make some of those decisions. Yeah, yeah. No, I will say that the uh, I was really excited to see the, the, the new Marlon Brando scenes in the Redux version, uh, mm-hmm. which were really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he was amazing. So, of course, they were amazing. <laughs> in and of themselves. Yeah. Um, so next I wanted to uh, talk about Heaven's Gate, which was another, you know, gigantic production, another epic film. Uh, and I was just sort of curious about, you know, how you kind of jumped in there and collaborated with Michael Tremino. And that also had multiple editors on it, I believe. Uh, Tom Rolfe was on there as yes, well? Yes, Tom Rolfe and uh, Bill Reynolds primarily. And Jerry Greenberg was brought on also for one scene. You know, Heaven's Gate um, was a, a fine experience for me. I had a fine experience working with Michael Cimino, but compared to all of the other movies that I've worked on, where it was a you know where I where it was a very um, long and intense uh, involvement with the film, a kind of primary involvement with the film, Heaven's Gate wasn't that for me. Tom Rolfe was the uh, original editor, and. It was a difficult film for Michael, and so at some point he brought on other people, and he brought on me at one point, uh, I think at Francis's recommendation, and I came down and I edited certain scenes, um, and that was all fine and good, and then, and then he added in Bill Reynolds, which was a wonderful treat for me because I was very young at the time, very green, and Bill was really uh, a fantastic older editor who just seemed to look at look at material and it would fall into place. And that was just really a great experience for me to, to kind of get to know Bill. Um, and then, you know, and then all of a sudden we were, we were done and going to New York, and then the film was really, um, you know, as, as everyone knows, uh, trashed by Vincent Canby and, and closed down immediately. So, which was a bit of a shock, I think, to everybody. Uh, and then it was recut um, later, I believe, by, by Bill Reynolds into a shorter version, which uh, really wasn't better. Um, and so, you know, I don't have... Um, I don't have the kind of... Um, you know, I didn't have the kind of creative involvement in, in Heaven's Gate as I, as I did have in every other film that I've worked on. I just, you know, I just um, was a collaborator, and, and, and during the time that I was on it, uh, it was good. But it, uh, I can't speak about it in the same way that I would about Apocalypse or The Right Stuff or Children of the Lesser God, mm. for instance. Were there any uh, sequences that you remember cutting? In Heaven's Gate? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I cut lots of sequences. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I can't say that I, you know, there was one quintessential important sequence that I cut in that film. I can say that about other films, but not about Yeah. I kind of jumped around, yeah. Uh, no, I just, I think it's too bad that, uh, you know, the movie was sort of panned the way it was because you look at it now and it's, you know, visually stunning. I mean, the production design, the cinematography, it's, uh, you know, I don't think there's anything else that's really like it. Well, Michael had a background in art. He master's in art history from Yale. He's a very, very smart man and serious. So his, um, you know, he was under just so much pressure. Um, 
at the time, and he had managed to make so many enemies that I just don't think that people really gave the film a chance. Yeah, I think the media sort of came down on the escalating budget and, you know, sort of what was going on on the set that it sort of, when the movie was released, I guess it came with that baggage, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, there's also, uh, what's interesting, I don't know if you've seen it all on the internet, but Steven Soderbergh on his website, he cut his own version of Heaven's Gate, which <laughs> I think is like an hour and 45 minutes. If you haven't, I would I would definitely check it out. It's... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, well, what he does is he starts with uh, the scene in Wyoming, or I guess Christopher Walken is going into the tents with the family, and I guess he's shooting at somebody, and then it just goes like directly to uh, Chris Christopherson uh, getting off on the train. So he just cuts out like the whole Harvard, you know, sequence uh, yeah. at the beginning, and so yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> but uh, well, you can do a lot with hindsight. Yeah. Um, and then uh, to the right stuff, which uh, you ended up. Uh, winning an Academy Award for, and also had uh, Tom Rolfe as well. Uh, another another epic film. Uh, so, in terms of that, what were some of the challenges uh, of working on that, and, and what are some sequences that uh, you know you really recall? You know. Yeah, that was a very different experience because I was on that from the beginning, and um, you know, it was a very uh, remarkable film to work on. Uh, you know, Phil Kaufman had a vision of incorporating lots of different kinds of footage, documentary footage, NASA footage, um, what was called special effects footage then, although it had nothing to do with computers at the time, and, um, and of course, his dramatic footage and, and integrating all of those things. Um, and it began with um, uh, the first editor who was on, uh, Glenn Farr, was really in charge of assembling so much of the non um, non dramatic footage, you know, the or, or not assembling but collecting, or you know, uh, collecting an, a library of NASA footage and documentary footage, and some of that documentary footage, um, like for instance the parade, the homecoming parade of John Glenn, um, Phil shot to integrate with the demo- the documentary footage, but other other pieces of footage like the NASA footage um, just existed in a big, you know, just in a big bin of, of, of random footage and rocket footage and things like that. So when I came onto the film, started putting the scenes together, um, uh, you know, I started working with a lot of that footage and creating scenes from scratch. And so some of the main scenes and then there was a third editor, the other third main editor is uh, Steve Rotter from New York. So the three of us, for the most part, worked uh, together uh, on the body of the film. Tom Rolfe and uh, Doug Stewart came on really quite towards the end. But um, the way we divided up the film, Stephen Rotter and I divided up certain um, of the scenes according to the... uh, what would you call it, the vehicle. He did a lot of the scenes that had to do in the plane, and I did a lot of the scenes that had to do in the rockets, in other words, outer space. And uh, one of the main scenes that I worked on for a long long time and designed in the editing room is the Glenn flight around orbiting the Earth, three orbits around Earth. Um, That was made up of different elements that were just created during the editing process. Um, they didn't really exist before. All that existed was Glenn 
uh, in the Glenn's head, in the um, Ed Harris's head, in the cabin of the spaceship with different lights going around his face. And then we had the windows, and we could put anything in the windows. So I did a lot of experimenting with different things in the windows, sunrises, moonrises, starscapes, everything um, that would tell the narrative story of what happens in the orbits around the sun. And those, then those elements were designed specifically by Gary Gutierrez, who is the um, special effects coordinator, and ultimately a very avant-garde filmmaker, old filmmaker named Jordan Belson, who worked with very abstract images. And that process was really an amazing process. We didn't have computers. Um, we were working partly because it was those days in San Francisco and partly because of Phil's idea that he didn't want to, you know, he wanted to create a world of outer space that existed and that would exist prior to Star Wars. You know, people, audiences had been to outer space through the Star Wars movies. But this movie took place long before that, and so, I mean, the story of this movie took place long before that. So he wanted to create the images of outer space in a very, very different way. So we used um, some of the NASA footage, some matte paintings, some uh, images of the capsule that were created in a kind of crazy way by throwing uh, little miniature capsules off the roof along a wire really? and filming it with um, and, and filming it on clear film you could put anything behind that film and then um, asking Jordan for certain abstract images of our eyes uh, or a star field and that was the way that, that that sequence came into being it was a very long difficult process of creating those three orbits around Around the, around the Earth, um, and then integrating the actual story elements, which were taken from history, which is that, you know, he thought that he saw some fireflies, and the people on the ground thought that he was losing his mind, and then the, the capsule got into trouble and almost caught on fire. All of this, of course, is the real history of what happened during the orbit, um, and all of that had to be created. Um, so that was a really exciting sequence to work on. It took a long time to come into being. A lot of experience. Um, the other was the opening of the film, which was scripted to be a little bit different. It was scripted to be a kind of uh, historical overview in a way of um, what led up to the space program, a kind of abstract of, a historical overview taking place through the clouds, but that didn't work at all. So we had to come up with something new. So we experimented with cloud footage, which actually was taken from just regular footage of the plane sequences, um, which was not very interesting. You know, planes going through the clouds in and of themselves, in and of itself is not very interesting. It's very hard to get a sense of speed. So we took that cloud footage and we just manipulated it in every conceivable way. Uh, sped it up, slowed it down, turned it grainy, black and white. And all of this was done in an optical house. It was all pre-computer. So it all had to be pre-visualized and ordered. And then uh, that was intercut with archival footage of the early test pilots. And uh, that was how the opening of the film came into being. And uh, again, the uh, 
The voiceover was written in the editing room. A rough draft of it was written and performed by my assistant. <laughs> and then <laughs> Phil wrote the final the final animation that opens the film. Yeah, I was curious, uh, too, with such a large ensemble cast, uh, was it difficult at all determining, uh, you know, what to leave in, what to leave out, and sort of uh, how to balance the story? Um, well, it's always difficult, you know. It's difficult on small films, and it's difficult on large films. Um, it was the same process with as with Apocalypse Now. These are giant epic stories, and some elements need to be in to propel the story from a from a historical or a plot point of view, and other other things are character-driven. Um, but, you know, it's always that decision of what's essential to the overall arc of the film from a story point of view and then a rhythm point of view. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the scenes that was under, under discussion for a long time and that has been criticized, was criticized at the time, um, because the film was long, was the whole section of involving the Aborigines. Um, and this was during the, um, again, during Glenn's orbit around Earth, there's a whole section of involving uh, the Aborigines in Australia and a dance that they do, and, you know, their participation in the film. And uh, Phil felt very strongly that he really wanted that, that material in the film because it kind of... Uh, it was about a kind of uh, mystical or spiritual element to the whole um, experience of these pilots, uh, even though it involves different characters. It was, it was an element that was just crucial to him in the storytelling, even though it had no, it had no specific plot purpose. And so we worked hard on that section, and he stuck to his guns in terms of keeping it in the film, even though there was a lot of... Um, producer uh, pushback against that and it was just very important so it stayed in yeah the uh the bill conti music score is you know really incredible and uh i was wondering how much you know what was sort of the collaboration process like with bill conti and uh coming up with those music cues and and placing them within the film well with with the right stuff we worked extensively with a, a tent music track and um that really, I mean, that's also something that is done on many films, and I often cut a lot with music because it helps me to find the, the, the right kind of feel for the scene. And um, so there, there were a lot of musical ideas developed during the cutting process before Bill Conti came up to the scene. Uh, that's not to say that he didn't do great work. He did do great work. Um, but there were a lot of musical ideas articulated in advance. And again, specifically uh, for the Glenn uh, space flight, uh, we used, we experimented with a lot of music and we ended up using Holtz, the planets, to really create the final version of the scene. And at the end of the day, that was what was used in the final film as well. Uh, and... Uh... Also, too, uh, Tom Rolfe, who passed away last year. I was wondering if, uh, you know, you have any memory of sort of vital lessons that you learned from him and, you know, just sort of your process working with him. Um, I don't know if I learned any vital lessons, but it was very interesting getting to know Tom, both on um, Heaven's Gate and then on The Right Stuff. I was, I was a young editor at the time of both of those films, and... I was a woman, <laughs> 
And so I was always in the company of other older male editors. And, um, and that was a, a difficult thing for them and for me. And I think that when I came on to um, Heaven's Gate, there was a certain amount of antagonism to this young upstart woman coming up to the film. And then uh, on The Right Stuff, the process was reversed. He came on to the film where I was there first, and we got to be much better friends on The Right Stuff. Uh, we kind of found our footing, and I liked Tom immensely, uh, and really admired his sense of humor, and just learned, as you would learn from somebody who's been around uh, much longer than you have, <laughs> um, to kind of to kind of ride the waves that uh, that come inevitably when you are working on big films and there's a lot of pressure. So rather than I would say film film. Um, nuggets of wisdom it was more life nuggets of wisdom yeah uh, another project uh, i was curious about was uh captain eo which was directed by francis coppola and it was a 3d uh disney land disney world attraction with michael jackson uh and that must have been you know very much kind of early days of 3d technology uh so i was curious sort of your process of working on that and kind of dealing with uh you know the the new technology the 3d yeah, it was really interesting, and um, I, I, you know, again, I, um, I worked on it right at the beginning, and it was kind of a fantastic experience, certainly technically, um, and also getting to know Michael Jackson because I was there during the shooting of it. Um, it was it was just interesting, mostly from a technical point of view, really, uh, because it was so new, and. Um, I was working with Francis and also with George on it. Um, I didn't stay to the end of it because I had the, which uh, they knew I was not going to. They asked me to be on it, and I said that I was going to go off and edit Children of a Lesser God at a certain date when that project started shooting. So that was the amount of time I had to spend on Captain EO. And I think I took it through the first cut. I can't quite remember. And then I left to go do Children of a Lesser God, and Walter came up finished the film. Walter and I have, you know, segued on and off several projects together. So he finished the film um, when I went off to do Children of Lester God. But um, certainly the first part of it was just a fascinating, fascinating process for me. Were, were there uh, certain types of cameras that were used uh, to shoot the 3D in? Or was it kind of like multiple cameras that were kind of angled at one another? or? God, I, you know, it's a great question, and I'm embarrassed to say that I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the process of 3D at that point was that, um, yeah, I guess it's two cameras, and they're slightly offset um, from one another. And so if you, look at the, uh, if you look at the image without the glasses, uh, you're looking at a, essentially a double, a, double, a double image that's just, one slightly behind and to the side of the other. Um, but embarrassingly, I really don't remember very much about it. It was a long time ago. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then on Children of a Lesser God, which is you know really a brilliant film, uh, Rhonda Haynes directed. Uh, I was curious, sort of, the process of editing scenes where you're you know someone who's who's deaf, you know, the lead actress, and uh, you know finding kind of the the balance when you're, you know, editing a scene like that? 
Yeah, you know, Children of Lesser God, though it's a very small and quiet film, was, of course, probably the most challenging film I've ever done. Um, and I chose it for that reason. I was looking for a film to do on my own after these big movies, where which were very big and important movies, and uh, but they were all collaborations with other editors. And since I was so much younger than the other editors, I you know, nobody ever knew who did what on those films. And I, I always felt, well, the assumption was that I was a minor player because I was so much younger. And I really wanted a film of my own, you know, to show my own abilities. And when I heard about Children of God, I was really intrigued by the project itself and also felt like, well, this is a film that I could really, that you know, where I could showcase my, my own abilities. So I lobbied very, very hard for that film. And um, it was a film that was so challenging uh, and ultimately so rewarding because, you know, the film was really designed to play as a love story. And ultimately, um, it really works as a love story. And, and most people don't really even see certain things about it that were so challenging, which is that really only one of the characters is talking in the entire film. Um, and the sign language is its own language that is, you know, a deaf person can watch the film and, and understand it completely. So it was really edited in layers. I mean, um, Bill Hurt is saying his own lines, and he's also saying what she's saying out loud, what she's saying in sign. So he's talking constantly, which is a, a very unusual situation in a film. Yeah, because he has to sort of talk for her in a sense so the audience can, you know, kind of understand and, you know, just sort of push their communication process. Of course. So he's yeah. saying what he's saying and then he's saying what she's saying. And at the same time, you have to have time, space for the signing, which is her language, to take place. And in cutting, you have to be sure that you're really cutting it, or this was a commitment that Randa and I made, that it was cut so that a deaf person could watch it. That, so I had to learn all the signs. I had to learn that language of the script and make sure that when I'm cutting the hands and cutting around, that I wasn't cutting out a word or cutting out an idea. And so it was extremely challenging, and I did it in kind of several passes. I did it once for sort of clarity, right, so that I, I had all the... I had all the words and all the lines, and then I had to go back and do it for pace and for emotion and all the normal things that you do in a film. So, and the fact that at the end of the day it worked as a normal film was really, uh, and people didn't really even understand the technical challenges of it, was really gratifying. Yeah, I thought the uh, the scenes too with uh, Piper Laurie playing Marley Matlin's mother were, were really incredible. Uh, you know, she, I think she was nominated for an Oscar for that performance. She was, as was Marley, of course. And um, Randa is a fantastic director of actors. She is very sensitive and has, you know, in all of the movies that she's done, uh, really elicited amazing performances. And so that was, of course, a huge focus of our work was to uh, was to preserve uh, the nuances of, of the performances of the actors, which were all incredible, including Bill Hurt, which was a very subtle and wonderful performance. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Marley Matlin went on to you know win an Academy Award, and you know still has a, a prominent acting career now on television and in film. Yeah, and she was she was cast when she was nineteen, and she was cast just out of a um, I think she had been in a high school production of something. Um, she was 
she was very, very inexperienced. Uh, so it was it was remarkable. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering too. Uh, another f- film with Francis Coppola, Godfather Three, uh, which I think did Walter Murch also work on that as well. He did. He came on again um, in the later part of the film, towards the end. But he did, yes, work on it. Uh, so what were, do you think, some of the, the challenges going into Godfather 3, and was there any, you know, big differences between the, the script and what was uh, eventually put together in the editing room? Um, well, with Francis, there are always big differences between the script and what's put together in the editing room. That's actually part of his process, um, which makes it, oh, sorry, uh, which makes it one of, makes it exciting to work with him because the editing process is always very creative. Some editors might not like that, but that's how I began with him, and so that's in many ways how I understand the editing process to be, which is that you, it's, it's just, you're not just assembling a movie that's already been pre-thought in the script writing process or in the shooting process. Of course, the script is important and the shooting is important, but the editing is equally as important, and it's kind of the final rewrite. And um, so it's always that way with him. And um, Godfather 3 was even more that way, because there were things that happened during the shooting that he didn't expect, Uh, one of which was that his daughter, Sophia, (laughs) took over the role uh, from Winona Ryder. And um, that, of course, changed everything for him. His own daughter was in it, and it informed his thinking about character, and therefore it completely informed and changed the ending of the movie. So um, there were a lot of challenges, story challenges in that film. And there were also technical challenges. It was the it was the movie where we first went from film to not film. It wasn't digital. It was analog. But we went, we edited the movie on something called the montage system, which was one of the first uh, non-film editing machines, but it wasn't a digital, it wasn't digital. It involved 17 t- tape decks really? <laughs> that um, it was connected to, and Just it was like very, very tape, complicated uh... <laughs> and, and, and laborious cut on the system. So at the beginning, of course, there was a question of uh, learning that um, that machine and that system. And I actually think that when Walter came onto the film, he did not work on it because he he uh, he took a section of the film in the uh, film, I believe. Well, and that was like kind of like a they were, they were just videotapes. They yep. were all, like all the dailies were on videotapes, and then kind of cutting from there. Yeah, the the film. I mean, it was shot on film, of course, and then it was on videotapes, big like VHS type tapes or beta tapes. I can't remember. And there was a whole machine room full of tapes, and every time you made a cut, the, the machines had to kind of look for the material tape and in fact you couldn't even when you shot when you cut a very fast I cut a scene in which there was a big shootout in a room and it all was very quick the cutting was very quick and I couldn't even view the whole scene at once because the the tape decks couldn't catch up with me and I could only watch it in sections it was it was crazy (laughs) very difficult (laughs) I can imagine 
we were working, you know, transferring from, you know, working uh, by hand with film on a, you know, movieola or flatbed editing system and then eventually going to computers. Is there any nostalgia for editing on film or are you happy to be, you know, now that computers have really taken over editing? Well, at first I was very, very, um, I really missed film and I missed the tactile quality of film and the rhythm of looking for material that you do in film where you scroll through things looking for material. You're looking for something in particular, but along the way you're looking at lots of other footage and and then you get new ideas from doing that. Um, it's really a different mental process. Um, it's sort of like it's sort of like browsing in a bookstore. You browse in a bookstore, you have a book in mind, but along the way you see other books and you think, oh, I want to read that and that. Uh, maybe I want to read that instead of the first idea. And you get that in film, by cutting in film. And you don't get that by cutting, uh, certainly digitally, where you can get to what your first thought is instantly. And you don't necessarily go looking for other alternatives. So, um, after, I, I did go back to, to cutting in film after I'd already cut on the Avid uh, and everything, but I um, I did ultimately find it very unwieldy. Once 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 you've cut on the, you know, I did even though I got back some of the things I missed, I did ultimately find it very unwieldy. So I guess it was a question of training my eyes to get out of computer editing the things that I loved about. Um, film editing and to make myself, uh, to keep that in my mind, to let myself browse, to let myself look at other material other than what I could just access instantly. Yeah. Do you think it's important to uh, look over, you know, the dailies or just the raw footage uh, repeatedly before ever making a cut? Well, you can't look at everything before making a cut. I mean, yeah. that it would take you 10 years to... Uh, <laughs> to get through everything. I think it's very, very important, whatever the medium is, to look at the dailies for the first time um, carefully and to make notes, because, or at least I make a lot of notes, because that's your first impression of the film. I always, always revert back to my first impression, what moved me, you know, what I thought was funny. Um, I go, I go from those first, those first reactions. And so I'm always reviewing my notes. I'm always scanning my notes, if not all the, all the material, uh, to remind myself of what I loved from the beginning. Um, and I do go back into the material, certainly at some point, just to kind of revisit it and make sure I've made the right choices. Yeah. Um, I was curious, too, about uh, My Best Friend's Wedding, which uh, I had the opportunity to interview uh, Ron Bass, who is a screenwriter on that. Right. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of become a hallmark romantic comedy. Uh, so, sort of curious about uh, you know your experience cutting a you know very kind of genre romantic comedy compared to the other types of films that you've made. Um, it was interesting and it was fun, and that was the movie that actually um, we did do in film <laughs> after having worked you know uh, on a computer, and it was it was that interesting combination of. It was fun to be back on film, but it was also very unwieldy, and so um, it was very, it was a very different experience, and I I enjoyed it. I also did not stay on that film the whole time, um, 
I enjoyed it. I can't say that it grabbed me by the heart in the same way. I mean, I, I, I mean, not just the film, but the whole process in the same way as the other films that I have been involved with. Um, not that I don't like comedies, but I guess the other films have meant a lot more to me in terms of what they're about and, uh, and what the process has been in creating them. It's been a lot more... A lot more... Um, a lot more to do in the editing room. The, but my best friend's wedding also went through a reshooting process. And so that was interesting because I think in the early cutting, um, uh, they discovered some things that were really funny and wanted to go back and then shoot more uh, of that, which because they hadn't realized it was going to be as funny as it was. Yeah. So that's what they did. Uh, I was curious. This is sort of a, another general question, but uh, when you're when you're cutting through the course of production and filming, uh, do you ever go about maybe suggesting coverage to a director if they're about to like sort of shoot the next day? If there's something that you think uh, is probably essential to put a sequence uh, together, absolutely. I mean, and you know that's that's one of the purposes of having um, editors on during production is to inform the production before it's too late to do anything about it. And um, most directors ask for that. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to tell a director something if I felt they weren't open to my feedback. But usually that's why you're there, either there in person or on the film. I mean, when I was on Godfather 3, I was not there in person. Um, it's wonderful to be in person with the director and spend time looking at dailies, sitting next to the director, uh, because then you you just pick up what it is they're really trying to get to get at, and that informs everything that you do. But mostly that's not done anymore because of the expense of bringing an editor on location when, in fact, you can communicate via Skype, you know, everything so easily. So, for instance, on Godfather 3, I was not in Rome. when, Or I was not in Italy when Francis was shooting up in San Francisco, but we communicated all the time about the material and about what was needed, maybe what was what was needed in addition. And, you know, for Francis to ask me what I thought was really, at the time, kind of intimidating, but, um, but, but I was his sounding board, and that was really important for him. I do bring that to the process, certainly what it's asked for. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, it's important to, you know, if you don't have those pieces, it's really difficult to put the scene together. And then plus two, you're, you know, you're on the expense of having a location or having a set. And if they tear down the set and you can't right, shoot it's too again. late. And, you know, the, the, the editing, what, what's so important about the editor's role, besides the craft of putting, putting it together, is that the editor is the first audience for the material. And if you respect your editor, the sensibilities of your editor, not just the, ability, the abilities of your editor, but the sensibilities of your editor, you want to know how they're responding to the film, because that's your first audience. So as a director, you might think, oh, I'm really getting something great here from this actor. The editor says, you know, I'm not getting it, or I'm getting this, but I, I really want a little more of that, or, you know, I love the look in his eye. Could we, get, could we see something more about that? Um, that's that's really invaluable for a director because he doesn't have he or she doesn't have that distance from the material when they're in the middle of shooting. They have a million other things on their mind. Yeah, it's hard to find that objectivity. And uh, in in sort of in that realm, I was wondering if you've had any experience with uh, some of these sort of Nielsen 
test screenings and uh, if you found those, you know, unhelpful, helpful in terms of uh, what the results are? Yeah, focus groups and test screenings can be really helpful or really unhelpful, depending on who's running them and the questions that are asked and why you're having them. You know, on big studio film, when they're having them to, to decide whether they're really going to be behind the movie, whether the movie's going to sink or swim, how they're going to market the movie, um, and they are controlling the test screening uh, and the questions that are asked, it can often be very destructive to the process. Um, but if you can control what the questions are and how they're asked of the audience uh, and really kind of let it inform, do it at a time when you can let it inform your creative process, um, it can be really helpful. You know, sometimes executives will, will hear something at the audience, and an audience member will say, well, I hated that part, or I hated that character, and they'll misunderstand what it is that you should be doing. They'll say, oh, cut out that character, or cut out that part, because the audience doesn't like that. And that's not really what you want to be taking away from it. You want to be taking away, why are they not liking it? And is there something, you know, five scenes earlier that we could have done that would prepare them for that part, that would make them understand it better or respond to it the way we think we want them to respond to it? We, we as um, filmmakers, ask a completely different kind of question in order to make the film better. Yeah. I was curious, have you ever had any drastic changes made to a film based on a test screening? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Children of a Lesser God went through some test screenings, and the ending was changed. Well, certain scenes were shot and added to the film, which were maybe good. A couple of scenes were taken out of the film. A couple of scenes were fought over but remained in the film. And the ending was reshot. So uh, that was a film where, you know, um, it went from a film where nobody was paying attention to the film when it was first, when it was first being shot because they didn't even believe it could be a film. And then when, when they saw the first cut, they got so excited because they thought it was amazing and it could be a great film. And then they got really invested in how the audience was going to respond to it and had a lot of these test screenings some of which were helpful, some of which were destructive. Yeah, I know it's uh, sort of a double-edged sword sometimes in terms of, you know, what the results can be. Right, exactly. Yeah, um, I was curious uh, sort of what projects you're working on now, and uh, I know you directed a documentary uh, recently. Right. <laughs> I went back to my roots, um, which were in documentary to begin with. So, uh, yeah, I directed, I co-directed along with my brother, a film called Sweet Dreams, which was a wonderful experience. I'm just finishing it now. I mean, the film has been finished, but I'm in the last stages of the distribution process now. And that was really um, an exciting, wonderful experience. And uh, people often ask me, well, how does that relate to all these big films that you've done? And actually, it related quite a bit. You know, it was, it, it was a movie in Rwanda, which, of course, is a documentary, but... It involves several threads, which many people thought couldn't come together. It's a film about uh, women from both sides of the 1994 genocide in Rwanda, Hutu and Tutsi women, who came together in 2005 to drum 
they broke the taboo against women drumming and became the first women's drum troupe in Rwanda. And then some years later, in 2008, their leader met some American women ice cream entrepreneurs and asked them to help the group open the first ice cream shop in Rwanda. So the film tracks the drummers, the starting of the ice cream shop, and also, of course, goes into the genocide and into the women's story. So it has these three very distinct threads and tones that are very different. And it was very difficult to weave these these things together. And not unlike the bigger films I've worked on, which weave a lot of different elements together. And, uh, so, so I felt that everything was connected, even though this was a film I directed, as well as edited, along with my brother. And uh, it was a documentary and not a narrative, and yet storytelling is storytelling. And at the end of the day, we're trying to tell uh, a story with an arc and with a lot of emotion, and that's going to affect the audience emotionally. That's the point of all the movies. Yeah, uh, I was curious too in, uh, in 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 two aspects in terms of uh, editing uh, a film that you've directed and also uh, editing a documentary. Uh, how did the, how does that affect uh, the general editing process compared to sort of a, a feature film where you're, you know, both working with a screenplay and also working with a, another director? Um, yeah, well, it's similar and different, of course. Um, I always say that, and, you know, that directors shouldn't edit their own material, <laughs> that they need that objective other person at the other end. Uh, and I really do in general feel that way. But on this movie, uh, on this documentary, well, first of all, I was doing it with my brother. So we were each that other person for the other. You know, we had we had the other person to bump up against, to disagree with, or to agree with. And that was invaluable. Um, we didn't have a script going in. We went to Rwanda not knowing really what we would find. And, you know, the film evolved. Our sense of the film, what kind of film it could be, evolved over the year and a half we were spent shooting it. So we were essentially kind of writing it in our heads as we were shooting it. We weren't, we didn't really know how it would go together exactly, but we started to have a feeling for what the elements needed to be as we were shooting it. And so, um, you know, in essentially that was preparing for editing it and that we were kind of creating the story in our minds. And then the editing process was different. We didn't have a script and we didn't have a precise structure, although we had one part of the structure, which really helped, which was the evolution of the ice cream store, which happened, you know, which is a linear process. So we at least had sort of a linear spine to kind of build on. And uh, as I said, we, we each took different parts of the film at different times. We re-edited each other's work. Uh, I worked a lot on structure because I've, had a lot of experience on structure, and I work with a kind of a structure board that I've invented where I just have a big board with the cards of the film, uh, the cards of scenes. That I work on all films this way. Wow, it's almost like what a screenwriter does when they you know, they put up scenes on a board. That's interesting. Yeah, I've actually seen this. I, I started doing this long before that screenwriting program was ever there. <laughs> but um, it's, it's exactly like a screenwriting program. I have um, cards for scenes, and I work with different colors. And my first decisions about what the colors, I usually only use three colors. Somehow I divide the film into three elements that make sense for me in the, in the, in the film, and I give them colors. And then 
I constantly am shifting the structure, and I'm when I'm looking at the board, I can see my different structures, and I can also see the kind of overall architecture and rhythm of the film by just looking at the colors, even if I don't read what's on the cards. So that's a really important part of my thinking process, and I use it on all films, and I use it on dreams as well. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's something unique. I've I've never heard of that before, but I can see how it can be really useful because then you can sort of look at the material outside of just you know on the computer screen. You know, you can sort of right. see the scope of what the entire film is. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, with film editing, it's it's a house of cards. You know, you're always you're always refining every scene individually, and then. Once you get that scene to be working perfectly, you have to analyze, is it in the right place in the film? And if you move it uh, and you change the juxtaposition of scenes, then that affects it too. So you might have to change it internally again. And then once you change it internally again, is it working in the new place as well as you thought it would? And you're constantly juggling the details internally with the overall structure of the film. Now it's serving the overall story and emotion of the film. And it is a house of cards. Every time you change one thing, it just ripples down the line. It changes everything around it. And that's a lot of what the editing process is, is constantly shifting the emphasis within scenes and within the structure of the scene. What? Do you also have uh, the runtime of the scene on the card as well? I do not have that, no. But I have a quite a good mental clock about how things, how long things should be. That, I mean, again, you know, film editing is a very intuitive process. You're making so many decisions uh, all the time, exactly what frame to cut on, what shot to, what shot to be on for any given line, any given moment, how long the scene should be, what, what the emphasis of the scene should be, what should come before the scene, what should come after the scene. And all of that, some of that is intellectual, but most of it is intuitive and rhythmic and emotional and uh, kind of musical. You have to feel what the cadence of, every, of any given movie is, how the actors or the characters are talking, and absorb it into your rhythm of cutting. And that really determines the pace of the film, yeah. and the length of the film, length of the scenes. And again, everything affects everything. So, you know, quick cutting jagged cutting, lyrical cutting, all of that comes out of the style of the film, the way it was shot, the way it is being performed, or the way the characters are, and you have to make that consistent throughout the film. Yeah, uh, the, the last question I wanted to ask you uh, was sort of just uh, sort of another general question about editing, which is sort of what do you think is um, one of maybe like one of the biggest misconceptions about the editing process, as well as... Uh, how would you sort of define film editing in your own, you know, general sense? Yeah, I think the very biggest misconception about film editing is that the, the movie sort of exists and the editor is there to cut things out and trim things down. And it's actually the opposite process. The movie doesn't exist, really, until it comes into the editing room. You know, when a movie is shot, um, for the most part, it is shot in many, many different pieces even within every scene. So if there is a scene, even if it's two people at a table, 
you know, the simplest possible scene is shot with many, many different pieces. It's shot with close-ups. It's shot with close-ups of each character. It's shot with masters or, or medium shots or other shots that you could cut to, like somebody's hand or the silverware. Uh, and so when you put together a scene, you have many, many choices of how that scene should be and where the emphasis should be. Uh, should it be on the person talking? Should it be on the person listening? Should it be on someone at the next table listening? You know, you make all of those decisions in the cutting room, and and that that is the movie. That is how the movie is actually made. And so the movie is built up from many, many different uh, pieces that are not really predetermined. Uh, even the script, even as good as the script is, it is... The, the, the editing is what's bringing it to life. You have to look at the script and look at what was shot and remember what was the intention of this story um, and how do I put the scene together, what kind of shots to use, in what order um, to to give the scene and ultimately the movie, uh, to bring it to life the way the script intended. But there are so many different choices within that. Yeah, it's something, there's uh, something that Ilya Kazan said once, which is he was comparing uh, theater to film, and he was saying that a screenplay is more made than it is written compared to in the theater where a screenplay is, I mean, where a, a stage play is more written than it's made. Sort of saying that like, a, you know, a, a screenplay is written, but really the, the making of it, the actual process of shooting and editing it is really where the thing is actually made. And the screenplay is just sort of like a foundation to kind of build upon in a sense. Yeah, well, I think all of the elements of filmmaking are crucial, and, and each one alone is not the film. I mean, if you just shot the screenplay, you would have a very dead thing, because each when you're shooting, all kinds of things happen that can't, could not have possibly been in the screenplay, which is the qualities that the actors give to it, you know, which are different, nuanced, uh, the qualities of whatever happens uh, in the process of shooting, the light, the choice of the location, the choice of the cine- the choices of the cinematographer, they're all adding layers to the screenplay. And the same thing happens in the editing room. And it's really important to let that happen in the editing room. I think that's something that is going away, the sense that, you know, you can bring the material into the editing room and you can work really fast at the computer and just assemble it and there you have the movie without a- adding that creative layer to the film that all the other previous layers, you know, received. The actors, the, the filmmaking team added a lot to the screenplay. Of course, this, it's also true that you need a strong screenplay. You can't go into it without a strong screenplay. So everything is really important. It's just everything in it isn't, isn't the film. One thing is not the film. Once the film is shot, it becomes a new, new raw material. Uh, that, that has new possibilities.